Anyway, welcome everybody to Faces of Veterans, episode two, duh, part duh. Uh, I am here, I am Mike Nelson, civilian co-host here with veteran co-host, founder, visionary, Air Force vet, Stephen Willett. Stephen, how are we? Good, how are you? I am fantastic. We're joined today by, I did, forgot to ask you your rank, Joe, but Joe Dalton, who is a Marine. Right, because you never stop being a Marine, is what I'm told. All right. So, uh, Joe, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what you did in the Marines, who you are. What was your rank, Joe? I started as a private, then got got through boot camp and uh, got commissioned as second lieutenant. Boot camp was an experience with... uh, uh, nothing better than 13 weeks with two DIs with you 24 hour, 24 hours a day. Nice. Uh, but uh, then went to advanced infantry training at Quantico. Graduated from there, went to Cherry Point to one of the great ideas the Marine Corps had, which was a, an airfield uh, that could accept uh, any Marine or Navy um, aircraft with a 1,500-foot runway using JATO on it and a, a catapult. Uh, it worked so well that a friend of mine became uh, uh, almost became an ace uh, by sinking two phantom jets in the South China Sea uh, because it, the engines pr- produced by uh, GE didn't work. Then I, uh, so I left there and they assigned me to uh, work with the Vietnamese out in the field uh, with the population. And I spent oh, probably a year, year and a half with the Vietnamese, then uh, came back to uh, the United States and uh, got a discharge because I had seen a lot of the uh, bureaucracy and slow moving that the Marine Corps was involved in at that point. Doesn't everybody love a bureaucracy? I can't even speak. Can you say bureaucracy? Bureaucracy. Bureaucracy. I'm I'm Air Force, so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Steve, what do you got over there? Yeah, so I mean, first, Joe, I just I I want to say, you know, thank you for your service. Um, thank you for for everything that that you did. Um, whenever I do like the photography project, Faces of Veterans, I always, you know, Vietnam veterans. They're they're when I started when I started it, Faces of Veterans actually started Vietnam veterans were the hardest uh, group of veterans to reach. And so whenever I, I come in contact with one, I always tell them, thank you. Thank you for your service and, and welcome home, um, because I feel that that's a that's an important thing to 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 tell that era of, of veteran. Um, what I, you may have said it in the beginning. Um, what, what year did you go in the in the Marines? I uh, went in and went in the Marine Corps in sixty uh, three, the end of sixty three. And got out in '67. Uh, okay, um, and you you went to Vietnam, and then you came back, and you then you went to Cherry Point. No, I went to Cherry. I was oh, at Cherry basic. Point first. For okay, that. 
I've been to Cherry Point. I used to, uh, when I did confinement in North Carolina, when I was stationed there up in Goldsboro, uh, Seymour Johnson uh, Air Force Base, when I was there, I used to transport people down to the to the Marine Brig um, down there. So that was always interesting. You know, Air Force, you know, guys going into the brig for the first time and, and they... They get down there, and, and especially like the officers. I mean, the 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 COs or wh- whatever the Marines call them um, in the brig. I mean, they would just eat them up as soon as they were like in processing. So it was it was a good time. But um, yeah, so tell me a little bit more about, or tell us a little bit more about your service. Um, well, um, for some reason, the Marine Corps thinks any Marine Corps officer can take on any job. So when uh, I uh, was shot over towards a, uh, uh, a helicopter base, I, I said, uh, guys, uh, we don't use JADO and catapults uh, <laughs> in helicopters. And uh, so they immediately made me uh, intelligence officer which is really a stretch of the imagination. (laughs) Uh, But the intelligence officer was uh, dealt with the local population. And uh, so that meant I had a jeep, a Marine Corps gunnery sergeant, and a Marine Corps uh, Vietnamese sergeant, Marine. And we uh, traveled around the uh, village, which was six miles long and two miles wide, uh, and had uh, uh, one headquarters, or what would you call the uh, the district, not the district, but uh, it was the headquarters. But the headquarters were some guy's house. Mm-hmm. And uh, we uh, dealt with the Vietnamese, and our objective was to... Uh, Prove to the Vietnamese that the Americans weren't bad guys, that we were here to help you. Uh, one of the problems we had was uh, uh, Buddhists uh, in the area we served in. Uh, Wait, I'm sorry, the, the Buddhists were the, the problem? The Buddhists. They owned <laughs> uh, a lot of the land. Oh, okay. And I, well, I was, I'm sitting here, I'm like, wait a minute, aren't they uh, pacifists? <laughs> so why, why were the Buddhists a problem? <laughs> well, there, there were, uh, in our region, there were two large mountains. One was Marble Mountain, which was a mountain made of marble. And the Vietnamese used to cut the marbles with saws, and the kids would throw the water on the blade, and they'd make nameplates and things like that. The other one was Monkey Mountain, uh, which was north of Da Nang, and uh, Monkey Mountain got its name from the monkeys. They'd uh, the wire around the base. The uh, monkeys didn't like, so they when everybody anybody was walking by the the wire in the base, the monkeys would uh, throw rocks at them. And these were not small monkeys. <laughs> so they weren't hey, small rocks, I'd imagine. I mean, that, right? The New York Yankees would have liked some of the pictures that they had <laughs> on Monkey Mountain. But we, uh, we went around and we tried to find problems that existed. Uh, one of the things we found was that uh, if you build a one, uh, if Mar- let's say the Marines went in and built a one-room one, one room, uh, 
school for the kids. Uh, you know, VC come through at night and blow it up. And it was a, a v, it was an American school. It wasn't Vietnamese school. That's how they thought. You know, they'd sit there and say, "Well, they blew up another building," and but it was an American school, so we don't have to worry. Uh, then we found uh, the children were bathed in. in uh, there were a lot of uh, rice patties, and they bathed the children in the rice patties. Uh, and uh, the kids would get an open sore from playing or whatever, and next time they get uh, bathed in paddy water, which infected them. And uh, we found out that that was happening. We tried to convince the Vietnamese mothers to uh, bathe them in uh, regular well water. Yeah. And they weren't interested in it, so we did what any good Marine would do. Uh, we stole a Pol Polaroid camera and film from the Navy, and uh, we went and took pictures of all the kids with the mothers. Now, the Vietnamese really didn't have pictures, really, of their family at all. And we took the pictures, showed them the Polaroid pictures, and Boy, they wanted the pictures, and we said, no, no, we're not going to give you the pictures. Uh, you're going to have, here's a bar of soap. You're going to bathe the water, the baby or the child in, uh, in uh, well water as opposed to swamp water. And uh, we'll be back uh, within a week or 10 days, and we'll know whether you did it or not. And we came back and... Uh, the mothers wanted the pictures. They did what they were told. And when we came back, if the kids had been healed up, they got the pictures. If they didn't, they didn't get the pictures. So we almost had 100% uh, of the parents had pictures with their child. Mm -hmm. Another instance, we had the uh, uh, one-room school, and they had a Vietnamese teacher. And they grew uh, their own food, and they'd have plants or melons, and uh, they'd bring them in, and they were the size of maybe a large uh, orange. We tried to convince the Vietnamese that uh, they should use fertilizer, and uh, we had contacts with Da Nang, with uh, uh, one of the people who knew uh, nutrition as well as how to produce the product and brought him in with a Vietnamese interpreter and uh, convinced the fathers who were manning the patty and the mothers. And they used fertilizer. And now Junior came home with a melon two or three times the size his father was growing. And, you know, now all of a sudden, mm, we want the fertilizer. So at that point, we said, we'll sell you the fertilizer. We're a firm believer in, you know, you, you just don't give stuff away. Uh, it's got to be a value to it. And that can be in uh, 
rice, it could be in hardwood, it could be in almost anything. And the fathers started using uh, uh, the fertilizer. So, you know, those are some of the experiments. We had one, we had a father in a, a hamlet that was a grandfather in a hamlet. Who we, he was the hamlet chief. And the hamlet chief was leaned more to the uh, uh, VC than he did to the Americans. And the child, uh, child, it was a girl probably around seven years of age, had a hair lip, and uh, we were able to convince the two Navy doctors that we had with us that uh, she should be taken for operation to cure the hair lip. The girl had, uh, I think it was six different minor operations uh, and came back and went, brought her back to be with the family, and they, the grandfather was just uh, couldn't believe it. And all of a sudden, we had a, a big friend, and a comment he made through our interpreter was that uh, you have not only uh, improved her looks, but you have given her an opportunity to get married. And so it, things like that continually came up. Uh, the mountain that we uh, we were with usually was Monkey at Marble Mountain. Marble Mountain was, you know, we're talking about uh, going up mountains. Well, this mountain had steps all the way up made of marble. Carved right into the stone? Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. That must have been a sight. It How was, far up did it go? Uh, it was probably around 1,100 feet. Holy moly. And uh, at the top stairs, was... Uh, Buddhist uh, uh, conclave, and they had uh, two caves. One was uh, probably around, and these were man-made, mm -hmm. probably around 10 to 15 feet high. And in the cave was a, a statue of Buddha. And the other cave had a... Uh, 30 foot with a hole in the top of it and it's for the sun to shine in on the Buddha statue and uh, the Buddhists ran, ran this operation quite an effort to, to yeah, I don't know how many hundreds of years it took to create those caves but uh, uh, they were beautiful you think the, they're still standing? I mean they still uh, like do you know I mean you probably haven't been back I mean, you know, like, do they still exist? I mean, this just sounds like such a beautiful thing. It was, you got to remember that Vietnam was called the Pearl of the Orient. Uh, the French had it as a colony until the Japanese invaded and uh, took control. And then after, uh, after the, when, let's see, Truman was in office, he uh, took, uh, the, after World War II, Truman authorized the French to take over Vietnam because Vietnam, previ previous to that, were French. And, uh, of course, the French didn't do a very good job. And uh, 
after the after after Truman, uh, next president was Eisenhower, and he really screwed things up. <laughs> Uh, he, isn't that what poli- wait, isn't that what politicians do, man? Like you know, <laughs> but he, he came in and he started bringing, started giving a lot of aid to there. There was an armistice uh, that was going to uh, solve the problems in Vietnam, uh, and the armistice was that they would divide the country in half, and. Uh, they did that, and then they had to support the South because they weren't too enthused about anything. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to work their patties or make the money off the uh, the, the natives. Um, and so we had the problem with with Eisenhower. Uh, and let's see who came in next. Uh, well, the next two presidents, building up to Kennedy. Uh, Kennedy sent was the one who sent the troops in, and uh, when the first Marines came off the landing craft, uh, they were greeted by uh, beautiful Vietnamese girls and house eyes and everything else, and it it was a joke. And then the the Marines were put into a position of defensive position. They were defending Da Nang Air, Air Base. And uh, finally, they got orders that they could go out. But the real, uh, and then uh, wound up at the end with, uh, oh boy, McNamara, Secretary of Defense, and uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, They really screwed it up. Uh, McNamara had his, uh, his whiz kids. And they came up with great ideas like, let's buy cheaper ammunition. And they bought cheaper ammunition, uh, the the gunpowder. And there were a lot of guys in Vietnam killed because their guns jammed, their weapons jammed. Uh, And then McNamara uh, was asked, Five generals, Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, want to meet with the president to discuss what they believe should be done, which basically was uh, uh, Haiphong Harbor, uh, blockade it, mine it, cover the the coast of uh, Vietnam, and cut off supplies to the North Vietnamese. And our good at that time, President Johnson called them a bunch of cowards at a meeting that it took months to get with the president. And so that's the history of a disaster. If they had let the military do what they could, wanted to do, but they weren't allowed to do that. They weren't allowed to cross a border, couldn't go into Laos, although some guys did get into Laos. Not, it, they found out later, but uh, uh, it was just it, when Lyndon Johnson got in. Now, you got to remember, Lyndon Johnson wore the Silver Star. How did he get the Silver Star? He was never in service. He was in an observation plane 
uh, over in Vietnam. I did want to go back. I wanted to correct myself on something. I had said <laughs> Cherry Point um, when I was stationed in North Carolina. I used to take people to the brig when I did confinement. It was Camp Lejeune that I took people to, not Cherry Point. I know where Cherry Point is, um, but we always used to go to Camp Lejeune and transport. Yeah. I, I just didn't want somebody commenting and being like, who is this guy? There is no brig on Cherry Point. I don't know if there is or not. There but, is. Okay. Making stuff up. <laughs> so, so, I totally, so I totally could have left it. But uh, yeah, we used to take them down to Lejeune. Um, you talked a lot about your, your time in Vietnam. Um, so far since we've been together and 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 you don't have to answer this um but can you kind of you know for for michael and i and for many people that are listening we don't really quite grasp um at least for me like whenever i went overseas and i returned there was always a welcome wagon and there was you know people come up and thank you for your service and they're they're appreciative uh, and I think that it's important to know for, for a lot of people to hear firsthand from somebody that uh, served in Vietnam. Can you kind of just briefly, if you don't mind, can you kind of just talk about what the reception was like when, when you did come home? I, I know of people that have, that have talked about they had to change out of their uniform um, in the airport um, before being seen in the public. Um, okay. Do you have anything... I think more of that was on the West Coast when they were coming home. Uh, but there was quite a bit of that. And uh, it was baby killers, you know, you baby killers. And uh, uh, just, I didn't have anybody scream at me. Uh, I didn't have anybody spit at me, but there were large contingents that uh, didn't care about the military. They just saw their own viewpoint that we're at a war, which they considered uh, bad. They, they, they lumped each individual member of the military who was serving their country. They, they marked him or her as someone bad. And I think most just didn't get any welcome at all. When you got off the when you got off the plane, when you were going home, uh, you go in an airport and no one would say anything to you. You were just non-existent. Uh, luckily, I had a father who came to the airport to pick me up and uh, bring me home to my house in Brooklyn. And uh, when I arrived, my sister had put together uh, a small party of my friends. And that was my welcome home. But there was no recognition. There was uh, no parades. Uh, Why do you think the public blamed the, the soldiers for the decisions politicians were making? That's something I just never understood about, you know, when, I, when you see any kind of media about Vietnam and, you know, protesting against soldiers. And I just never understood it. I'm like, the soldiers aren't making these decisions. I, I think it's not. A, yeah, I think it's a lot of what he... he was saying earlier, like the politicians and the and the mistakes they made and the decisions they made to, to really just screw things up and, and you know who better to blame than than the, the the 
troops coming home. The guys on the ground, right? Like, you know, yeah. it's it's amazing. You got to remember, it was the the '60s too when I was yeah. coming back. It wasn't the '70s, but the the '60s. You had Haight Ashbury, and uh, uh, they. Uh, it was the thing to do. Mm-hmm. Right. It was showing you a point of view. And I, I just, we call that virtue signaling now, right? Mm-hmm. That's, uh, let me show you how great I am by what yeah. I'm pissed off about these days. It's, well, and a lot of the media as well. I mean, the, the things that they were showing and the stories that they were covering uh, from from Vietnam. And, and one of my college classes, I just did a, a study on this. And, and it talked about, you know, the the effects that some of the, the media coverage had uh that were on the ground and the, and the, the footage that they were sending home and the pictures that they were sending home, you know, you didn't have, a, a so much of, I mean, winning the hearts and minds and the good things that, right. that troops were doing overseas. You had all the negative stuff. Well, think about the, the two stories that you just told about some of the things that you did while you're at the, in the village that you're at, you know, where you're trying to help these people learn simple personal hygiene you know, to help their kids, their babies from not getting infected and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and bathing and things like that. Like, you know, I can't, I find it hard to believe that everything was, you well, know, they, they, the, the people evil. at that time were looking for something that they could yell about. And yeah. uh, the, the target was the military. Uh, but when you talk about the media, you know, the biggest problem we had, like this country had at the, uh, was the Tet Offensive. Mm-hmm. Now, here was Walter Conkrite, who was the grandfather to everybody in the country. That's how they saw him. Sure. And he reten- reported, stood up and reported that uh, this war is un- unlivable and uh, this is a major military victory. Well, he didn't know what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> you know, number one, the VC got wiped out. Completely, you know, there might have been four or five guys still sitting in a hut someplace, but the VC were demolished. And the North Vietnamese had major losses uh, of people. They thought that the Vietnamese would come out in waves and support them. Mm -hmm. No, the Vietnamese, all they wanted to do was just live quietly, live and have subsistence and live their life well enough so that when they died, they were reincarnated. And they came back, I don't know whether it was by an animal or a human being, but they didn't want any part of the war. They didn't, you know, uh, the, some of the biggest agitators in Vietnam uh, were the Buddhists. Uh, I had to go down and teach a school down at Da Nang for three days. Uh, military uh, thing on pacification. And, you know, well, it was typical. You know, they, I got put up in some hotel, uh, nice hotel. Uh, but the nice hotel, you know, why it was nice was on the roof was a bar, a very big bar with entertainment and everything, and uh, food and beverage. And you look over the edge and watch the, stu- the, the student riots. These were the students who didn't want to go in the army. And they were rioting, and the Buddhists were continually uh, continually getting them upset to riot and everything. 
But you know, the peop the general people in the in the outskirts is like some guy with a Minnesota farm is ticked off about something, but he's too busy doing something. Right. And but the the Buddhists got them got the students all excited. But the thing it comes back to when when Cronkite made his statement, this war is unwinnable. He didn't know what the hell he was talking about. Uh, and the American public then all of a sudden, you know, the support of the troops. Thank God for the hard hats, because the hard hats were the only strong support that the military had. When you say hard hats, what do you mean? Guys in construction. Blue collar guys. Yeah. And they, yeah. you know, will work with their hands, not some guy in a nice executive suite. Yeah. These are the guys who work with their hands, and a lot of them were a probably former military. Um, so you know, that's the only real support besides the family of the troops themselves. Yeah. I just have a, a few more questions, and they're, they're more um, kind of overhead questions. Um, first, what, what, what do you think, and, and I ask everybody that, that I've interviewed in the past um, about their service, what, what, does, what does the word service mean to you personally when, when you look back at, at, you know, one, what's going on now in, in America, uh, what has gone on over the past decade or so, and then looking at your time in the military, what does what does service mean to you? To me, it's the word obligation. If you're going to take the benefits, you got to pay some bills, and uh, those bills might be you have to go into service. You have to, you know, that's an obligation on the part. In Israel, everybody goes into service. You know, in the United States, the Northeast has the lowest ratio of of people entering the service. Do they really? Mm -hmm. Absolutely the worst. The Northeast does. It, it's, a hard, it's a hard area to, to penetrate with the with the military for recruiters to get in school. It's, I wonder why that is. I should. you think it would be California, man. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against you folks out in California if you're listening, but, uh, you know. No, it's the Northeast is, is tough. But go ahead, Joe. I'm yeah, sorry. You've got all these people who went to all these colleges, the high percentage of colleges mm -hmm. and they're, they're educated they're coming a lot of them coming from wealthy families well, you know you, you when you look at the statistics it surprises you when you hear people saying well it was a war fought by African Americans they were the African Americans had a population, I think it was around 13%. Uh, no, it was 17, 13, 13% 13 of the male population of military age mm -hmm. were African Americans. Uh, in Vietnam, right? In Vietnam. Oh, okay. And uh, that group had a lower death rate in Vietnam, just a couple of one or two points different than the white white guy in the service or mm -hmm. the Chinese guy or the Philippine guy. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of misinformation. Uh, I'm not sure whether I... I went on a, 
Damn. No, no, you're good. Why well, don't I interrupt all the time too? But, but so. you, were, you were just talking about obligation and what service means to you. Uh, it's an obligation. It's a responsibility that you've got to. If you want to, if you want to breathe the fresh air and you don't want to speak Chinese, uh, you pay your dues. Uh, I think we've gotten away from that. Uh, over the years, we've developed a whole bunch of pansies. <laughs> uh, <perfect>. Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah, they, they. I want it. I no, want I know, it. man. That's, I it. That's their cheer. You know, and now you got what is it? Uh, what's the new trend? Oh, I don't even know. There's so many of them that I. Shaking my head at right now. The language is changing. Yeah. You know, and it, it, everybody's got to be. Everybody's picked on. And you know, I look at it and I say, I see a lot of guys playing sports, uh, or in or in the entertainment field, mm-hmm. who are very very successful. And you know, you take some of the basketball players. You know. Not many of them went into service. Mm-hmm. You know, they went right into the sports and mm-hmm. made their millions. And uh, you know, to to kneel when you got the the Star Spangled Banner going. I am not that strong. I am not that big, but I think I would have kicked the guy right in the head. <laughs> uh, you know, and then recently there's another one. Uh, you know. Uh, female athlete that uh, wouldn't stand for the Star Spangled Banner. No, there's a bunch of them. It seems like pretty... Is that the... But, you know, the advantage of, you know, if they're swimmers, you might be able to drown them. (laughs) The one you're talking... Is that the the one that's currently temporarily... Detained. Held held over in Russia for a little while? Yeah. Yeah. On an extended layover? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, a seven-year you know, layover so in that's, Russia. You know, today they they're having a tough time recruiting uh, in all the services. Yeah, I keep reading that. And uh, the reason is that you know we don't have to. It's been given to us, and it's never going to be taken away. Yeah. And then we got to treat everybody as an individual. You know, you start seeing. My wife went to the YMCA. She talked to the guy who was the executive director. Very nice guy. But his business card has his name and then like 22 initials after it. <laughs> and it's all... He's super uh, qualified. Oh, no. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with his sexual uh, desires. Oh, all, that, and, all know, those acronyms. Oh, my bad. His pr- his <laughs> I thought pronouns. we were talking about credentials. Now we're talking about pronouns. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't. We don't even need to get into the, the pronouns. The days, things, the days man, we I, live in. Holy moly! Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and it's kind of a two-part question, is: uh, What do you miss the most about uh, your time in the military, and what do you miss the least? Probably the what I like the most and miss the most is probably. Uh, the com- camaraderie, mm-hmm. the sense of purpose, sense of accomplishment. Uh, what do I dislike? They should never let a politician near 
any military decision unless it's absolute mutiny. Now, these polit the politicians lost the Vietnam War, not the military. The military you know, did a very good job, and it's just that the politicians wouldn't let them do it. As I said, you know, the Joint Chiefs of Staff walked in after it took them months to get past McNamara, walked into the president and said, here's what you should be doing. And the president called them a bunch of cowards. And that's the chief politician in the country. People have got to realize, it's an old statement, so I'm not going to take fully full credit for it. But politicians run for office for different reasons. The three most popular are, number one, the money or the power. Number two, they will avoid making a decision, if at all possible, because when you make a decision, you make enemies. And number three, when painted into a corner to make a decision, it will be based on how it's going to affect their re-election campaign. That's the case of, I would say, easily 75% of the politicians in the United States. We might go 95% on that these days, Joe. Uh, I was trying to be No, nice. you're being very nice. <laughs> when it comes to politicians, though, that's the one place where I won't be very nice. And uh, we'd be lucky if it's 95% of those guys. You know, like, unbelievable. But that's the system. It forces them into it. Yeah. You know, these guys have to start raising money the day they're elected and raise money every single day. But they're the guys who, if you're in, if you got the job, you should do it right. And it should, you know, I would love to see the United States or New York State especially go to a uh, limit on the number of how number of days that you can be. An elected official. Oh, the, the whole country, law. as far as I'm concerned, mm -hmm. Joe, should go to term limits. But the problem is... They make the rules. They make the rules. They're not going to vote themselves out of a job. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? Oh, man. 88,000 IRS agents. Oh, don't, Joe, you're, now you're, me don't get break. me started. But I'm going to get up on my soapbox <laughs> in a minute here. I, I Believe me, I get pretty hot into the collar about all the things that are happening in our political system right now. That's a whole other podcast, Joe. Yeah, the other problem I think, think the military are facing now is that uh, this, all these different uh, rules that they've got, to, I can't call it a her, i got to call it a, no, I can't call her a she, so uh, uh, no, I can't call her a mother. You know, they, they, these guys are getting these rules thrown at them in the military, too. And, it, you know, that's a problem because once you become a full-bird colonel, your eye is on the star. And so you'll go along with a lot of people just because you want that star. There are a few people, you know, who uh, don't agree with that. But, uh, you know, it's true. They, you know, they... If you look at what's happening in the Marine Corps, you know, we got a commandant who won't even meet with a group of 14 past commandants of the Marine Corps mm -hmm. to discuss 
his plans. He wants to stick Marines on islands in the South China Sea with probably slingshots because we don't want to hurt anybody. And, you know... Well, plus all the money's going to the Ukraine right now, so, uh, you know... (laughs) We don't have any money for South China Seas, everybody, because we got, what is it, $60 billion so far that we've sent over to Ukraine? Well, more? Uh, Maybe yeah. more. My man, I'm starting to lose count, honestly. We send yeah. so many billions so often now. I'm like, I'd rather not spend it that way than hiring 88,000. <laughs> no, me too. IRS agents. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> uh, last, <laughs> the last question I have go back to 1963. What would you, I guess, what would you tell your younger self um, prior to going in the Marine Corps? Not, not just Vietnam, but, but just prior to going in the Marines. Um, what would you tell yourself and what would you tell uh, maybe 18, 19-year-old uh, man or woman um, getting ready to, to join the military now? One seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. You're going to grow up in the service. You're going to meet a plethora of. Uh, that's a big word. That that I, is a big I, word. I found John. that from Brian Hollywood one day. No, nice. Uh, but you'll find a plethora of different types of individuals, different races, different cu- cultures different desires, different financial situation. You're going to meet all those people, and you're going to meet those people the rest of your life. I mean, that type of person. Uh, you know, a kid going to college today or graduating from high school, you know, uh, four years of college, you got to be out of your mind these days to go mm-hmm. to four years of college. You're going you're gonna to learn respect. You're going to learn timeliness. You're going to learn... All the critical talents that you need in the in the military, and you'll carry them without the rest of your life. Uh, you know, there aren't too many guys I serve with who don't make their beds now <laughs> because they were taught to. You know, there was an admiral who said, "You know, if you're going to do one thing, you know, do." Uh, he was the admiral in charge of all the SEALs. Yeah. If you're going to do anything, you know, I read make his book. your bed in the morning because you've accomplished something. And that sets you for the whole day as opposed to complaining. But I think it's it's responsibility. I think it's it's the best product if you approach it so that you don't wind up in the break. But if you just do what you're told... And act like a human being. You're going to be better off in the job market when you uh, when you get out of the military. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. I mean, I, I was I was military police um, in the Air Force, and I mean, I was in for 16 years. And going from a small town in upstate New York to basic in San Antonio, Texas, to North Carolina, I, I had no idea what the South was like, and so. Going down there and then Hawaii and some time overseas and Korea and all that. I mean, the amount of people that you are introduced that are from complete different, like you said, cultural backgrounds, economic backgrounds, um, you know, they, they don't look like you. They don't talk like you. I mean, it's definitely, it does set you up later on in life 
to be able to communicate with those individuals effectively and, and to just, um, yeah, be able to to just come to a common ground with them versus I went to school for four years and now I'm right back in the same town that I grew up in and I've never left. Um, so yeah, and one thing that you had mentioned earlier in a previous uh, previous question, the camaraderie, and and that's one thing that I think that's one thing I miss the most. Um, even now, I've been out for five years, and uh, camaraderie is the, is the thing that I, I probably miss. Uh, not probably, I definitely miss the most uh, about my time in the service, and and I hear that so from just about every veteran that I ever talk to um, is they they miss that that brotherhood, that sisterhood, the camaraderie. Um, and when they get out, they often try and find that in other ways, and, and it's sometimes difficult. And that's also one of the reasons why uh, why I like this, why I like the, the podcast, why I started doing the pictures, is that camaraderie and meeting other veterans and still staying engaged with you know the veteran community. Um, is there anything that you do uh, you know in your own life to, to try and, Stay up with, <laughs> to stay involved with the, oh, with the veteran the community. The listeners can't see Joe's face, but he's making <laughs> some eyes at us. Uh, 1984, I went down and had a cocktail or two with some friends of uh, from the Marine Corps down in New York City. After a numerous number of beers, the idea of pulling together a reunion of... Uh, our basic school class, which was basically the you know the first one of the first classes to go into Vietnam in all fields, and uh, we wound up uh, scheduling every two years a reunion, and there were two hundred and forty in the, in the last class we were in, and uh, of the two hundred and forty. Like 190 we tracked down, and we had reunions all across the country at Marine bases with full programs that kept you going from 8 o'clock in the morning till cocktail time. And uh, it, it was like you were all 21 years of age again. It brings you into another lifestyle uh, you know, it doesn't, it exists outside and you cut in touch with people, but that's individuals. This is 65, 70 guys getting together for three days, no spouses allowed. It's <laughs> uh, <That's> dangerous. <laughs> and it's surprising. Why is, why is that a good thing, Joe? <laughs> <laughs> All three of us know that answer. Oh. But it, it opens it up to bring a spouse to a Marine reunion with the language that is used and, you know, just babysitting your spouse. And, you know, it just, I saw reunions, people have tried them, and we have the most reunions any Marine Corps group has had, like a class. And... Uh, I've seen him try it, and uh, a guy called me. He said, yeah, it was fantastic. This was another guy who didn't go to Oz. He went to some reunion, and he said, uh, yeah, it was a real good time. And uh, uh, I said, how many do you have? And he said, uh, we had uh, 32 or something like that. And I said, that's a good turnout. 
He said, well, you know, half of them were females, the wives. I said, well, that's the reason you didn't have 60. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's a camaraderie that even your family doesn't understand. Right. And uh, it's, it's great. It's great to do. And we have had 14 reunions. Uh, and uh, we had three, two three-star generals out of our class. No kidding. We had one Medal of Honor. God knows how many silver stars, a lot of them. And uh, a lot of guys with the uh, bronze star. With the combat V, ever hear? You know, you see. Well, the guy, the guys are um, bronze star. Well, if you did good paperwork in some service, you, you got a bronze star. <laughs> you know, I have a guy who's in Albany. He was the first tunnel rat in the Marine Corps. He was with us, and uh, he's still as goofy as he ever was. But uh, it's camaraderie. It's uh, it's friendship that. Uh, no one else understands until you get a DI who's yelling at you so loud that he's spitting in your face. You know, it just, uh, it's something you earn that you hang your hook on and say, I, and I, excuse me, but I, you know, a Marine is a Marine for life. It's a slogan in the Marine Corps, and it is true. Do you still eat crayons? What? Do you still eat crayons? Crayons? Crayons. No, they say the Marines eat crayons. <laughs> never mind. You've never heard that? Okay, never mind. Must um, be the younger Marines. Yeah, so the with, younger with the ones that, that hear this would, would understand. Um, Joe, I, I don't I don't have any other questions. I, I Michael, do you have any? No, I think that's it, Joe. I really appreciate you coming yeah, out, Yeah, definitely. And, and thanks for your service. do appreciate that for sure. And if you can find... Robert McNamara's grave, I would like to make a deposit to it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thanks again, Joe. Appreciate okay. it. And uh, uh, thank you for being for being here absolutely. and sharing with us. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, please, you can find us on glensfallstoday.com and download us podcasts uh, everywhere there are podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify. Uh, Please make sure you follow us, send to a friend, share the show, all that fun stuff, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.